Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of We Gotta Talk. I'm already talking with our guests, to be honest with you, and I did that annoying thing that podcasters do when I say, oh my God, can I hit record? So let me <laughs> introduce you really quickly, Laura, and then we can continue with our chat because it was really fun. So guys, today it's all about cancer prevention, general wellness, things to look out for to make sure there's no red flags with your health, and then why we need to care about taking care of our doctors and our nurses as well, which I think many people appreciate after COVID. So today's guest is Dr. Laura Vader. She's a gastro gastrointestinal oncologist, a writer, a speaker, a social media influencer, and all of her verticals are the things that I just mentioned. How to take care of ourselves, but also how to take care of the people who are taking care of us. Um, she has appeared in a number of um, uh, publications within the medicine world, and she is also a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, Master of Public Health from University of Pittsburgh. Yay, go Pitt. And has gone to, I mean, oh God, everywhere, Indiana University for medicine and so much more. And we were just connecting on the Pittsburgh stuff, um, Laura, before we started. So I, I saw that and I was like, oh, I like her already. <laughs> oh, Sonny, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled whoever's watching today. I just am, um, hopefully I can pass my goal to pass resources on to you that will make sense to you to help you prioritize your health. But yes, yeah, Sonny, so we were just chatting. Yes, I met my husband at Notre Dame. And I know your husband went to Notre Dame, mm -hmm. and but my husband's from Pittsburgh. And so before medical school, we went back to Pittsburgh and he worked there in the city and I did a graduate program at the University of Pittsburgh. So that's the Pittsburgh connection there. That's so fun. What part of town is he from? He's from the North Hills. Oh my gosh. Yay. Are you North from Pittsburgh? Is I'm that your Pittsburgh. Yeah, You're born and raised. Mellon, I'm to Carnegie Mellon. I'm from Robinson, McKee's Rocks, like oh, where yeah. all the Italian people landed, pretty Wonderful. much. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I, in my grad program, I went to all of those amazing community centers. We, I worked for the Arthritis Foundation, and mm -hmm. I got to go into all these, like McKee's Rock, all these cool community centers, and got to know some of the people in Pittsburgh, which was really neat. I could just go on and on. It's a very unique, <laughs> me too, me too. special group of people there. I know everybody's like, oh, but they hear and they're like, what? But it is just literally the best city. So anyway, I feel connected with you, Laura, before we get started chatting. Um, I came across your social media profile and I, I really wanted to talk with you because what you do is very intersectional. I think we've had a lot of guests on in the past who have taught us how to care for ourselves, which I think we're going to cover today as well. But the perspective that was so unique that you brought was that, okay, doctors are people too, nurses and doctors and PAs and whatever sort of area of medicine they happen to be in, and they need care too. I'm sure over the past several years with COVID having uh, moved through, swept the world, more than ever, we've been aware of the fact that, wow, that system needs a little rebooting so that the people who can actually help us are healthy themselves. What led you into that area of, of sort of discussion and, and advocacy? You know, it's actually really interesting when you go into medical training, so you're a nurse or you're a doctor and you're in training, it's really interesting how you are taught duty and sacrifice. You are taught patient first, patient above all, patient above sleep, patient above your own health. If you're sick, you go to work. If you have a urinary infection, you go to work. If you've got the flu, you go to work. If you go, if you are, you know, working for 30 hours straight, it's not about you, it's about your patient. And so that has been the system of medical training. That's, that's traditionally what it's been for nurses, for physicians, for every other healthcare worker. And 
you know, and it's taught to be, you know, this is a vocation, this is a sacrifice. And most people that go into these, we know that that our patients are first and we care so deeply about our patients. But now we are really learning so much through research and data that when our clinicians are burned out, exhausted, sleep deprived, that their compassion goes down. Think about yourself postpartum. Think about yourself when you're exhausted, right? It's hard to hold compassion and patience for another human being when you're exhausted. It's hard to mentally be able to do the work, emotionally do the work, physically do the work when you're not cared for as a human being. And so we are trying to do a 180 in this realm of, of healthcare. If we take care of our clinicians as human beings, they are more able to provide empathetic care and you know, take care of patients as human beings. The two are really connected. Absolutely. And I don't think you have to be a medical provider, a medical care provider to really identify with that. The first analogy that popped into my head was motherhood or, <laughs> you know, fatherhood, although it's a little less intense typically on, on the dads. But, um, you know, it's that same concept of pouring from an empty cup. So what would most people be most surprised to learn about, whether it's lack of sleep or other crazy schedules that we might not know that our doctors either had to endure or are currently enduring as residents that would just shock us? So every other industry, so airline pilots are required to sleep for safety, so they don't have accidents. Truck drivers are required to sleep for people on the road for safety. Medicine is not that way. We still routinely work 30 hours or more. I've worked 28 hour shifts, which means I'm awake for 30 hours every four a day. days. A day. Three. So you're getting almost a week's worth of work in minus 10 hours in like a day and a half. And that's is so you're working 80 hour weeks or more and you're training. And when you're done with training, you may graduate and surgeons, many people I work with are just on call for a week straight. I have a friend who's a surgeon who just does, she does 72 hours straight, essentially without sleep. I've been on call for a week at a time with very little periods of sleep. So I think that there have been improvements in terms of work hour restrictions and things, but majority of physicians in training and beyond into medical practice are routinely sleep deprived as part of their training and care for patients. Does it feel like you're like sort of screaming into an empty space when you uh, advocate or, or speak about this? Because at least from an outside point of view, it doesn't seem like the system is keen to change anytime soon. I think it's really challenging because especially for residents who are doctors in training, right? They are, they are very cheap labor. They're given a salary. It's usually no more than 50 or $60,000 and they are expected to work 80 hours a week or more. And if we say, no, we need to give these doctors in training better shifts, better hours, what happens is there's a huge gap in who we would need to hire and who we would need to support all those extra hours when they were able to care for themselves and sleep or take care of themselves as human beings. So it really becomes a staffing issue and a money issue because um, there's either not enough physicians in training to be able to do that, or there's just not support to hire on the people who would be able to, who would have to take those shifts. So let's use this as an opportunity then to talk about the medical system in America. And again, you don't have to be an expert in this field to understand. I think we've all, as consumers of that, you know, consumers of medicine, have come up against challenges in getting the proper care, whether it's having to go through 10 referrals or having to wait for an appointment or, you know, feeling like the doctor was not listening well enough to your concerns, maybe prescribed something that didn't need to be when it could have been addressed another way. I mean, like from the consumer point of view, I think there's a lot of 
sort of criticisms that people have. What do you think is going right and wrong with the current medical system in America and where is there room for improvement? Yeah, first of all, there are there's a huge shortage of of clinicians. We have nurses on our wards who are running around sweating, working their tails off, and there's just not enough nurses. So those patients are feeling like they aren't getting the attention or care they need, and it's really a shortage of nurses. And that's a huge problem nationally right now, and it's a safety issue. Um, another issue is that physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners are also very short-staffed. People are leaving the field of medicine if they can, because they're, you know, part of this is the pandemic. Part of this is just being so exhausted by continually sacrificing their health and being pushed to go faster, to work harder. Um, when really those people are there because they do want to be able to sit with a person, to listen to them, to care deeply for them. But there are a lot of barriers in our healthcare system. And there are a lot of issues with disparities in our healthcare system. And so I think as much as that doctor that you're seeing that met, think about when you're in, in the room with the next doctor that you see, think about that person as a medical student, eager, compassionate, altruistic, intelligent. Think about all the things that they went through over that decade, that 10 years that went from when they started medical school until they stepped in, maybe put up their, now I'm a physician, all of that loss of compassion. It gets, we know that compassion gets trained out of physicians as they go through training. Research has shown that Part of that is overwork, part of that is sleep deprivation, and part of that is bullying, sexual harassment, and just a culture of let's just focus on getting the work done. Um, and the other part of this too is that I think clinicians, my mother's a primary care physician, and she works 80 hours a week, and she's just, she works so hard. She charts until midnight some nights, and she's just trying her best to answer the messages, to do all the things that her manager wants her to do. And I think that Clinicians who truly care try as hard as they can to try to sit with a person knowing that maybe they're an hour behind on their schedule and that there's, you know, all these other things that they have to do in the background. Um, it's just, you know, I could talk about this for days. No, days. I, th I think it's interesting, though, because I, I think, you know, we want better health care and you guys want to be able to provide care from a place of compassion and a place of true, um, you know, surplus rather than deficit. And it just makes me wonder what is the better solution? We hear so much criticism of um, countries where there is, you know, sort of standardized, you know, your basic kind of, um, uh, the, the word is eluding me right now. But like, pair, like a yes, single pair system. Mm -hmm. Right. And what do you think about that? And, you know, I have a lot of uh, nationalized healthcare. So what I'm trying to think, I have a lot of friends who've said, well, why don't we just go to the system that Canada has? Why don't we just go to the system that the UK has? Um, and get away from this, you know, private insurance model that we have. Do you have any opinions on what's best in the end for not only the patient, but also the doctor? I think that with the money that we spend in our country on healthcare, and yet don't we, we don't focus on prevention, we don't focus on public health, and our outcomes are still not nearly as good as other countries that have single-payer systems. I think we have a long way to go. And I do think that there are countries that do this very well. I've studied the NHS in, in you know, the UK, and there are ways that we could have a system, we already have in many ways a single payer system through Medicare and Medicaid, which is a government payer, right? And so there are ways to do this, but yet make it a really good system, especially with all this money we're investing. I will tell you that the challenges of having insurance is that it's a person in the middle, like a middleman, that the physician, myself included as an oncologist, sometimes has to say, 
I have a cancer treatment I know my patient needs. It takes me a week or two to just get approval for it. So that's a delay in that patient's care for a week or two just to get the approval. And sometimes it gets denied. Care that I know based on research is needed for this person gets denied. So then I'm on the phone. Then it's an hour or two or three or four or five hours of my time a week where I'm on the phone trying to do these things. And that's not just me. This is primary care doctors trying to get an MRI. They're trying to get all sorts of treatments. And so I understand there need to be checks and balances. At the same time, though, it seems to me that we could be, you know, I come from a family of engineers. And so it seems to me that there could be a lot more efficiency in our healthcare system that would serve our patients well and also free up some time for clinicians to be able to provide that care to patients. Yeah, it's easy to demonize insurance companies. And frankly, um, you know, I'm thinking of the movie. Oh, God, it was one horror movie and like the target was like, um, it was one of those like gore movies, but the target was like an insurance company because, oh, you know, it turned out that this guy had denied and it's this really messed up plot and blah, blah, blah. And you're thinking, my God, the rage that we have toward that system, that entity as a whole, because a lot of people do view them as the barrier between the care that they know they need and where they are now. And, you know, I I'm just so curious though, from a layman's point of view, why the medical system and why government hasn't been able to get together and fix this problem. 2022 feels way too late to continue to complain about these issues when we've known what the problems were all along. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think it is, it is easy to demonize someone, right? And I think that really people who work in insurance, they're just people who have jobs, who have found jobs that work for them and their families. Uh, I do think that there could be other jobs created for them if we were to adopt a more efficient single payer system. Do you think that's in our future? I know Obamacare, which is a very lightning rod topic for a lot of medical providers, aimed to address some of the um, imbalances in the system. Where did it, what did it get right? What did it get wrong? And like, what is, what is the work left to do? If you were in power tomorrow, Dr. Vader, and you were like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in my team of engineers. We're going to fix this. Give us the bullet points of the things that you would prescribe to make it better. Mm -hmm. Right. First of all, I would bring in all my I don't have a master's in healthcare policy. Mine's more on behavioral health and community health, right? And so first I bring a whole bunch of brains together because I've I've heard the American healthcare system described as like the mouse trap mouse trap game, right? It's so it's not just so easy as, well, let's fix this and that's fixed. It, there are just so many, there's so many convoluted pieces of how this works and how who gets paid in what way. And so I I would um, you know, as much as I support that model of simplifying things and would be part of the solution, I think that there are many people who are much smarter in this area than me who would who would really be able to prescribe the solution. But I think that things that we would need to come together to do is say, look how much money we're actually spending, not just through insurance companies, not just through Medicare, not through Medicaid, but out of pocket expenses that people are already paying. I mean, I have mm -hmm. patients that become bankrupt because of their cancer care. And to me, that is not okay. It's not okay that people go um, in other systems, right? I wouldn't want people to wait long time for care, right? If it's urgent care, we get them in, especially for cancer care. Um, but this should not also be something that if you have the ability to pay, you get care. And if you don't have the ability to pay, you don't get care because there are so many delays in our healthcare system, things that could be prevented, things that we could have done better that don't happen. So if it were me, we'd be focusing on prevention. We'd be focusing on public health. We'd be ensuring that people who don't have, they're either underinsured or uninsured now, receive primary care and prevention and the needed services they need, and that we have an expansion of primary care and an expansion of public health. And doing so in a way where there's a single payer system that just eliminates a lot of the hoops that clinicians and patients have to jump through.
Yeah, I'm getting the response from so many of our healthcare providers lately that they don't even accept insurance anymore. I would say now that it's becoming the majority situation where, and then as a family, we have to make the decision, okay, is this worth coming out of pocket X amount of dollars? And frankly, it's usually the amount of a copay. So if we're going to do it, I mean, it, it's, I'm hoping that some of the barriers are like breaking down and maybe like you said, this is the beginning of a move towards something else because I, I, it's so hard as, you know, we have five people in our family to find insurance covered care for everyone, for every issue. It's, it's just, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle these days. Providers are like, we don't even want to deal with it. So, I mean, there's enough, you know, a lot of your cognitive space as a clinician really should be on caring for that person in front of you understanding the science as it emerges and being able to die, you know, to digest that, present it into a, to a patient in a way that they can understand. Shouldn't have to be using your cognitive, emotional energy, physical energy with all of these other things, because it leads for patients and for clinicians, it leads to frustration. It leads to time away from a person, a human being sitting in front of you. It takes away from that connection, right? Mm -hmm. Because in, in it, my dream world, it would be that when you come see a doctor, you come see a nurse, just a human caring for another human and there's that human connection and there's that care and there's that concern and there's communication between the two and there's true support, that feeling of true support by your healthcare team. And I mm -hmm. think that a lot of these other barriers get in the way of that. We've seen some headlines lately, Dr. Vader, um, in various publications where doctors are being encouraged to not say certain things to patients. If it's you, you brought up the issue of prevention and getting into preventive medicine and preventive healthcare, which is what sparked this in my mind. Um, complaints, some patients, for example, don't want to be weighed anymore, that there's a card we, they can hand to the doctor and say, this is triggering for me. I may, ha may have a past history with an eating disorder, for example, and I, I no longer want to do this unless it's absolutely medical, medically necessary. Is this an actual trend that's happening in medicine right now, this sort of encouragement to not bring up certain topics with patients, or is that something that's being overblown in the media? It's something that I don't see often in my work because my patients that come to me, their weight and their height calculates, that's how I calculate their correct dose for chemotherapy. So it's not yet something that I'm seeing, but I think right. in the primary care world and other fields, certainly um, there can be topics. And I think it's always worth having these conversations between clinicians and human beings, patients about, you know, how can we best design healthcare? And if a weight is not needed, right, are there other measures? Are there other, you know, we know that you know, BMI, you may not, you may have a high BMI, but you're just solid muscle, right? There are measures in our healthcare world that are maybe not the best measures. Um, you know, taking a tape measure around your, you know, just above your belly button, for example, of your, of your waist circumference is a better measure of your health in many ways than your, your body mass index of calculating your height and your weight and using this formula. And so there, I think it's worth having a conversation and it's always worth talking about okay, if I'm unaware of your weight, it may change how I do X, Y, or Z mm -hmm. and communicating that to the person. And I don't see that in my world, but I can see how that could be um, difficult for someone who's experienced an eating disorder, for example. Sure. Are there any sweeping changes or trends that you've noticed when it comes to how, and again, being aware of the fact that you're in a, a very specialized area of medicine for day-to-day -day practice, but any other changes that you're noticing, like you 
bringing up prevention, a lot of patients these days, at least from my perspective, seem to be more aware of tests to ask for or more encouraged to kind of go to the doctor preventively than maybe in generations past. Are you seeing that um, sort of resonate on your end of the of the table as well? I do think that there are people that are more interested in, and I'm seeing that on social media as well, more people that are really interested in how can I with the tools that I have, of course, we all have a different resources and whatnot, but with the tools I have, how can I really try to live and feel the best that I can and also try to prevent disease in the future? And I hope that that's an ongoing shift because that will really, in many, many ways, help people to live longer and to feel better over time. What are some of the things that you suggest people keep an eye on? I know you do a lot of this advocacy on your social media as well, but to have an idea of where their health stands, their possible risk for cancer down the line, etc. So I think when it comes to cancer, um, in terms of trying to prevent cancer, right, cancer is really, what do you have in your genes? What's kind of bad luck? So what runs in your family? Do you have a, a very high risk of a certain cancer in your family? You know, talk to your primary care doctor about that. We even have high risk oncologists. Some of my colleagues all the work that they do is they, you know, they do, sometimes they do genetic testing, a lot of it is counseling, but also it's, it's making sure that that person is getting the appropriate screening tests that they need for cancer. So know your family history, get the appropriate screening tests based on your family history and risk. And if you're just of normal risk, know that you should receive your age appropriate cancer screenings because early detection saves lives. If we can detect a cancer early, and either treat it through surgery or another modality, we have a much better chance at curing it than if it's if it's caught later. What are the cancers that are easy to detect early outside of breast cancer, though? Because um, don't a lot start sort of innocuously and in a way that we wouldn't really typically notice? Yeah. So some cancers like pancreas cancer are very, very hard to detect. That's a cancer that I take care of. Just yesterday, I told two patients back to back that they had stage four pancreas cancer. And it is just, you know, this is the work that I do every day is I take care of patients with digestive cancers and pancreas cancer is really, really hard to detect because it's in the middle of your stomach and we'll go through some of the symptoms if you think your audience would be interested. Yeah, let's do it. Um, And we can kind of go back to screenings. Um, There's not a, we don't have a test yet for screening of pancreas cancer. We are hopeful in the years to come that there will be a blood test that will help us determine if there are certain cancers in someone's blood and in their body to hopefully detect early. Um, but for patient, many patients that have cancer, the first sign they might have would just be, the weight is falling off of me. I'm losing weight and not trying. And many people aren't aware of that. They're not aware, they say, oh, I just didn't eat as much this month. If you're losing 10 pounds without trying, our bodies cling to our weight. We do not, our bodies do not lose weight easily. So if the weight is falling off of you, there is most likely something medical going on. It could be cancer. It could be a new diagnosis of diabetes. It could be something else, but cancer is one of the big things that that's the first question I always ask, how much weight have you lost? I've lost 20 pounds in three months. I've lost 90 pounds in six months. And if the weight is falling off of you, that should be a red flag in your mind that there could be something wrong with your body, including cancer. Other things for pancreas cancer are um, pain in the middle of the stomach. And that can wrap around to the back, to the middle of your back. And so back pain is something that's very common, right? And you're going to say something funny. Uh-huh. No, does it feel like a muscle pain? Um, people describe it differently. 
is a pain that comes and goes. Sometimes it's just a vague pain. It's not always there, kind of comes and goes. Sometimes it can be worse with eating, but sometimes it's just a pain that's kind of, and most patients kind of dismiss it. Like, oh, I maybe I pulled a muscle or maybe I hurt my back. And the hard thing about this is that millions of people have back pain. And so most of those people are not gonna have pancreas cancer. Sometimes the first sign of pancreas cancer can be mid back pain. Um, another sign can be if the pancreas cancer kind of grows into one of those, the, the tubes or the ducts in your pancreas, and then mm -hmm. your skin starts to turn bronze, almost like a yellow color. That's called jaundice. So if your skin is changing color, that also changes the colors. That makes your urine dark. That makes your stool like a light, almost like a pale color. Mm -hmm. And your eyes, the white part of your eyes would turn yellow. So most people, when they see that, someone will say to them, oh, your skin, you know, I can see there's, and they'll go to the hospital and they'll be diagnosed early. But some, for some patients, you know, it's just the weight loss and maybe some fatigue. Um, and so, yes, that's kind of for pancreas cancer. Um, mm. But getting back to your question, Sunny, about cancers that can be detected early. There are a lot of the ones that we have screening for. So cervical cancer is one that mm -hmm. can be detected early. And if it's detected late, can be devastating. I've seen patients die of stage four cervical cancer, and it is devastating. So getting your pap smears, going to see your OB-GYN or your primary doctor is really important. And now they're pairing the pap smear with HPV testing. And so they're able to space out those tests. Now, now it's, you know, about every five years going in, starting at age 21 and, and getting that done. And again, I'm not an OB-GYN so that I know the guidelines change. Um, the other thing, of course, is getting your mammograms if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. If you're age 45, getting a colonoscopy or doing that stool test where you mm -hmm. send in your stool and it checks for blood because we can detect colon cancer early through those tests. Because if that stool test comes back positive, they go in, they see a small cancer, they can take it out, they can surgically remove part of your colon and you're taken care of, mm -hmm. right? So colon cancer is another that can be detected early. Um, we also, last thing I know, Ray, we have other things we want to talk about, Sonu, but um, most people are not aware of lung cancer screening. This is something that has emerged in the last few years that truly has the biggest potential to save people's lives because lung cancer is one of the biggest killers of cancer in our country. It kills more women than women that have breast cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer combined. So lung cancer is a huge cause and there's a lot of shame around a lung cancer diagnosis. But if you've ever smoked and you're 50, you should consider getting a very, very low dose CT scan once a year. Mm -hmm. It's not just once, but it needs to be every year. So they can look at those tiny changes in your lungs and they pick up early lung cancer. They take it out and they save people's lives. That's wild. So even if you've only smoked, I don't know, I never smoked, but just say, I don't know, six months or something. Like, is this something that people who were even recreational smokers or is this something for people who had a habit? There is, so it's really for people that have smoked about what they call 20 pack years. So that could be 10 years, two packs a day. That could be less than 10 years if you smoke three packs a day. But a pack year is essentially the years you've smoked by the number of packs you smoke. So if you're a one pack per day smoker, that's 20 years. So if you've smoked, you know, a good amount of years and were a heavy smoker when you were smoking for a short time or a pack a day for 20 years or more, even if you quit, you're still at risk for lung cancer. And wow. so those CT scans, and so for mammograms and colonoscopies, about three-fourths of people get them if they're eligible. For lung cancer, only 7% of people get those, those tests. So there is a huge opportunity to actually find it early and treat that and save people's lives. And maybe someone who's listening today is going to say, push their parent, their loved one, or themselves to actually go get tested.
And that's something they would go to their general practitioner for and request a script for. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you'd probably be referred to a center that just does that because most of the time, if they see a tiny spot in your lung, it's not cancer. So that needs to be followed over time. And so you need someone who knows how to read those scans and knows to follow up with you to make sure that it's not cancer. What are uh, some other good preventive things we can do in addition to testing things that you maybe do day to day, whether it be a supplement you take or a practice that you do that has been shown to decrease the risk of cancer? Yeah. So most of the things that help prevent cancer are things that promote your health in general. So being physically active, trying not to be sedentary. I think this is the hardest thing for most of us, but physical activity, at least if you can, 30 minutes a day, even if it's going for a walk or Mm -hmm. breaking it up into 15 minutes and 15 minutes, physical activity really does reduce the risk of cancer. Um, Eating plants. So we know if you actually, you know, it's actually really interesting. They've studied the properties of blueberries and of citrus fruit and of, you know, strawberries and raspberries and broccoli and kale and cauliflower. And like, they know that plants contain properties called antioxidants and phytonutrients. And there's something about eating a diet that has lots of plants that includes nuts and beans and seeds and just any type of whole plant that really does reduce your risk of cancer and trying to not eat processed foods and particularly processed meats and even red meats. We know that there are higher higher chances of cancer, particularly of the GI tract of people who are eating processed meats and red meats. And nowadays chicken, unfortunately, has so much saturated fat. You know, 100 years ago, it didn't have that much saturated fat, but nowadays chicken has a lot of saturated fat. So just in general, trying to reduce the amount of meat that you eat. I know that we're in a country of meat lovers, right? So this is really hard, not shaming yourself, not blaming yourself, but just trying to reduce the amount of, of animal products that you're eating and expanding the amount of plants that you're eating. Wow. What are some of the most, uh, some of the healthiest patients that you've worked with incorporated into their lives? Or what are some surprising things that some of your healthier patients or people that you've known? And again, I know you're in a specialty where maybe you're not generally dealing with um, people who are just coming in for a checkup, but people that you've known even who have lived really long. You know, I know there are studies on longevity and all of the factors that influence that, but what are some of the things that those people say that they've been doing? So I have patients that live an incredibly long time with a cancer that is technically stage four. And, you know, there are things that we say, um, why is that? Is it, is it the cancer itself or is it something that that person is doing? And I will tell you, first of all, just as a caveat, Sunny, that I have patients who are marathon runners who do everything right, who still get cancer, right? So it's not a shame game. It's not a blame game. There's so many factors involved, but I have had patients who are very physically active, who are getting sleep at night, who are prioritizing um, their, their physical and mental health, who are eating well, who are doing better with cancer. And sometimes that's because their body can tolerate the treatments that they're on. And there's probably something underlying there with their biology and with their biochemistry that is impacting their ability to continue to do well. So all those things really do matter. And the other thing for my patients too, I check all of my patients, I check their vitamin D levels the first time Mm. I see them, because we know that if your vitamin D is supported, you feel better, your immune system works better, but also, um, you know, there, for some cancers, like breast cancer, right? We know that it can affect your your chance of getting breast cancer if your vitamin D is low. So making sure that your vitamin D either through your diet or taking a supplement is adequate, right? If you're reducing your amount of, of animal products, making sure your B12 levels are okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, just my patients that often live a long time have a lot of support in their communities. They've taken time in their lives to develop their relationships with their family members. They have, they have, 
friendships. They have people in their community who support them. And we know through research that the social connections you have in your life actually do impact your longevity. And Harvard has studied that for more than 80 years through the Harvard study of adult development. And they found through this huge, massive study following people over time, that it's really our social connections that mm -hmm. predict our longevity. And that if you're lonely or socially isolated, that that can take eight years off of your life. So that's a surprising thing as well, that yeah. the people who support you and the relationships you have really matter for your overall health as well. Yeah, I'm sure spirituality uh, plays a part in that as well. And I know that we've talked to several guests over the years who have talked about the importance of spirituality on a general level, whether it be a meditative practice or, a, you know, an organized religion, even anything that helps people access that element of themselves really seems to just greatly impact overall health, too. Mm -hmm. And they have uh, I've read a few books about the blue zones across the mm -hmm. world. And these are places for most, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this, but these are pockets of longevity, pe places where people live to 100 and beyond at a, at a high number. And they've found, of course, they're more physically active because they're hiking or they're doing things. So they're, they're very socially connected. They're eating mostly plants. Meat, meat is not a big part of their diet. Um, but a big part of this is having a purpose. And for many of these cultures, it's connecting to a higher power. And having that reduction of stress, either through prayer or just acknowledging that there are things in life that are bigger than them and out of their control. And there's a stress reduction that comes with that that I think is very powerful for our health. Oh my gosh, you are just like, I could cry right now because you are hitting on a point that has really resonated with me personally over the past couple of years. And I've been very open on this show and on my platform I have like a medical anxiety issue and this is new to me since parenthood. I think a lot of women have the sense of mortality that suddenly dawns upon them, right? When you have children, what has been so helpful to me has been the most basic piece of advice. And it's exactly what you said. It's the faith component. It's accepting that no matter how many pieces on the chessboard, I move into place to prime myself for optimal health things are going to be what things are going to be. And it's scary, but it's very liberating at the same time. But it's really hard for me to just keep remembering that, you know? Yeah. And I think that you have found a wisdom and an insight that many of my patients come to much later in life. And I have the gift of getting to meet all of these incredibly wise, caring, generous people who share with me what it feels like to be living with cancer and for some of them to be at the end of their lives. And what do they wish that they had spent their time doing? And they wish that they had spent more time letting go of things that were out of their control. They wish they'd spent more time in the present moment, loving the people around them, making the people feel seen, heard, and valued, and just enjoying and playing and laughing and being in those relationships. But in, as a parent, I get that too, of that worry. And we oh know gosh, the, bra yeah. the brain changes when we have kids. I know this. They do MRIs of people, of their brains before they have kids and after. It's for fathers too, not just the women who are birthing the babies, but the brain changes when you have a kid. And it increases your connection, of course, to your child, but also to other humans. And so mm -hmm. for me, at least, I felt that motherhood made me feel more, but there was also that concern for others that came more. And so finding healthy ways to handle that, to be able to lift that to a higher power, being able to meditate through prayer um, and enjoy as much as possible the present moment is, as, you know, as cliche as that may sound, that's truly where our happiness in life is found is, mm -hmm. is caring for other people deeply and being present with them. 
I need to take a deep breath. I'm getting emotional, but you know, um, it's, it's, it's hard, man. You get older, you get older and things happen to people that you know and love. And I think we all have this wake up call, whether it's through motherhood or through these experiences that we see um, other people going through. I'm in shock that you're able to come home every day to your personal life and not just be in a state of utter shambles because even talking about it is so hard for me and this is your day-to-day life. So I have so much respect for the strength that you must have daily. Well, you're very kind. I, 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 I'm very grateful for my patients and I, there are days like yesterday when I was having to deliver all of this bad news that I, I have to remind myself that I didn't, I'm not responsible for this person's cancer right? They came to me with this problem and it's my job to make them feel loved and seen and heard and to care for them as best that I can based on what their wishes are at this time. And I think that um, to me, it feels like a gift to be able to do this work because I, I love getting to pe- to help take all this complex knowledge and help translate it for a person who's going through something really difficult. How has your faith changed in what you do? I mean, I, I'm thinking of several friends who have gone through big life changing things lately. And again, from the outside, it's even, it's difficult, but how has your faith personally changed in doing the work that you do? Do you find yourself needing extra time in prayer or in meditation? Um, Do you, you just talked about these sort of, I don't want to be glib with this, but these deathbed revelations or these end of life revelations but what have you been most surprised or felt that you've needed to do more of since starting the work that you do, where you're actually dealing with life and death scenarios? Yeah, I, I feel that, you know, since I started medical training, death is something that I've had to deal with. I had a very close family friend that passed away from cancer when I was, you know, in college. And I have had other family members that have passed away. And I you know, I had to learn how to deal with death. And I think especially oncologists, we deal with this. I've already, you know, I've, in this past month, I've lost multiple patients. Um, a lot of my patients have decided to, for, and I support them to be home with their families and to spend that time as much as possible mm. in comfort and in the, in the love of their, of their um, loved ones. And I support that. And for me, I've, I've um, always had a very, very deep faith even even when I was a teenager, and I don't necessarily know where you know why, but I've always I've always been very spiritually grounded. I've always you know um, been rooted in scripture, and I've always spent time in nature, and I've always felt that there's been a deeper presence. And I feel like my medical training has just expanded that because I have you know, and I we could talk a whole time about this, but I have patients who are at the end of their lives that I've been with in the hospital, holding their hands as they pass, and they will see their loved ones or they will have a spiritual experience within the last, you know, five hours of their life. I mean, I've had patients that I've had, you know, the, the, the gift of the work that I do is I have patients that are from all over the country and the world who I get to, I get to know on a very deep level and they share spiritual encounters that they've been through. I have a patient that has worked at a cemetery for 50 years and he shared with me things that he's witnessed and things that he's experienced that are just Tell us, describe it. Tell us one. I'm like, by the way, I'm fully in tears over here. And I'm so sorry. I'm thinking of a friend that lost her battle with pancreatic cancer as you're talking. And I'm just, 
you know, it's, it's these things that you really like, you think, oh God, they could never happen. You know, I'm so, I'm sorry that I'm crying. No, I'm such no, a please. like boob you know, over here. Oh you my do not God. have to apologize because this is, um, you know, every day tears are part of the work that I do. And I think yeah. that we, we know that tears are an expression of love, an expression yeah. of care, that there was love there. And the grief yeah. is evidence that there was love. Yeah. Uh, I have a very good friend. My best friend um, has, her, her father has stage four pancreas cancer and she's, she's walking through that with him right now. And we talk regularly and she's, it's just, there's, this is, this is incredibly hard and there's often not words and, and, just know that I'm so sorry that, and it's incredible. Your friend is so lucky to have had you. Um, this patient uh, has told me many stories. Um, it's interesting that she, so some of the kind of the more interesting, one of the more interesting one is there is a, a person, a family member that this patient's son never met. And yet his son was at the cemetery uh, helping out and was kind of doing some things on their own. And a person who the son that this patient's son thought was a real person that was just visiting a grave um, was the exact appearance, the exact characteristics of this person spoke very distinctly and said very particular phrases. And, um, and then of course that they, they said goodbye and whatnot. And then the son went back to my patient and said, Oh, I just met this person. And they said their name was this. And I mean, his face just dropped and he's like, well, what are you talking about? That person died you know, before you oh were born. Gosh. And I mean, it's just like, things, oh my of course, gosh, that could be coincidental, but at the same time are just um, incredible in so many ways. Did you ever read the book Proof of Heaven? It's by that acclaimed neurosurgeon. I'm going to Google it while we talk. Oh, but I don't think I've read that one. Proof, hold on. I'm going to look it up so you can, so I can tell everybody and not mess it up here. Proof of Heaven by... Um, Eben Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander. So he's a neuroscientist and he goes through this whole explanation of how in his clinical practice, he had um, believed firmly based on the science of the brain, that there was no way that there could be life after death. And there was no discernible sort of separation of the soul from body that whatever phenomena people were seeing at their at the time of their death, he thought back then could be strictly explained away with science. And then he goes through this very um, rare, like bacterial kind of infection issue in his brain and comes out not only, of course, with the belief, but also kind of argues the science of it and why he now believes it from a scientific perspective. It's really, really compelling. And it's really interesting. And I loved reading it because for a you know critical thinking person like me, it helps to know that like, you know, scientists are in your corner and they're like, hey, <laughs> right. this is real. It's really good. It's really I, good. Oh, thank you so much for that. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah. Um, one more quick question for you and then we're going to wrap because um, I know we're taking up a lot of your time here today. Uh, we had a guest on a while back and you brought up the topic of vitamin D and how we can healthily get that into our diets. And he referenced a lot of um, studies that have been coming out about the positive effects of sunlight exposure. And it's his opinion that especially in the role of cancer prevention, like you're discussing, this is a really often overlooked, not, over, not only overlooked, but demonized sort of thing 
that has come out in recent years, avoid sun at all costs, cover up your body with clothing or SPF. Where do you stand on this? Because, um, you know, I, I, I shared some of his insights and people really reacted strongly to it. There were people who were melanoma survivors who were like, I can't believe you're putting this out there. And then there were people who were like, oh no, there's actually a ton of science supporting that we need more, much more sun than we're actually getting. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think I fall somewhere in the middle. And in general, most topics, I'm very open-minded. My patients give me books. I talk, I read about alternative medicine. I'm very, I'm a very um, open person. And I, I do believe in the benefits of nature. And I do believe in the benefits of being outdoors. And I think there needs to be a balance though. And to know your, know your risk. If you're a person that came from Ireland, you mm -hmm. have Irish heritage, or you're from Scandinavia, I come, you know, I have all of most, like most of us in the United States, we're kind of mutts of all sorts of different things, you know, but I have Swedish and Finnish and some Scottish and right. And so if you are a fair, if you have fair eyes and, and fair and light hair, you're going to be at higher risk of burning and you're going to be at higher. So know, first of all, know mm -hmm. your risk and know your family history when it comes to skin cancer. I also have skin cancer in my family. Um, but I think that we all could benefit from sun, sunlight exposure. We know that vitamin D is generated just within 10 minutes um, of being in the sun. So it's a very short amount of time. Um, know your risk, know that multiple sun, even three or four bad sunburns in your life really do increase your risk for skin cancer. So the goal is if you're going to be outdoors, know that does benefit your mental health to be in nature. Um, if you are exposed to bright sunlight in the morning, that resets melatonin in your body. So there are physiologic benefits to being in, the, you know, to, to having exposure to light and being in the sun. Um, know that if you're in a latitude, so you're north of about you know, I think it's about Northern Kentucky across the United States and North, you cannot make adequate vitamin D in the fall and the winter and early spring. So being out, it's okay to be outdoors, but just know that you're most likely going to need some type of supplementation. Um, we also know that there's a very vastly reduced chance of autoimmune diseases, particularly things like multiple sclerosis at the equator. So there's something there about mm -hmm autoimmune diseases and vitamin D and perhaps sunlight exposure. So I'm not in the camp that you should never see the sun that you should, you know, cover up, but I am in the, for me personally, I allow myself to have a little bit of sun exposure, but then I am cautious about things like sunscreen and, and, you know, I wear a hat if I'm going to be outdoors for multiple hours, I'll wear long sleeves because I know that I'm more prone to burning. Mm -hmm. We also know that, you know, sun exposure is responsible for about 80 to 90% of aging that we see wrinkles right, and, and, right. and dark spots as well as cancers. And so just being aware of that. And I think coming, at least for me, you know, being, taking a, a moderate approach to it, that it's not an all or nothing thing, but just like many things in life, moderation is, is the answer. Awesome. Dr. Larvader, thank you so much for spending time with me and acting not only as an expert, but also my counselor today, <laughs> our, our spiritual guide. Um, no, I love it. You bring, um, I, I look forward to your watching your success because you bring such a human element, such a human touch to this um, really, really big world of medicine that I think a lot of people need right now. So thank you. And tell us where we can connect with you, whether it be on social or online. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you having me here. So I, um, yes, I'm a gastrointestinal oncologist at the Simon Cancer Center here in Indianapolis. I hope that we never have to meet in that regard. Um, you can find me online. I have a website. It's just lauravotter.com. And then I'm also on social media, uh, primarily Instagram. I know that's where you and I connected, Sunny. And it's just at doc, D-O-C, Laura Vodder. 
and that's where you can find me. I'd be happy to connect. I've been mispronouncing your name oh. the whole time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know. No, no, it's so common. Oh I my gosh. I know. Well, I did. I know correct people either. And I feel like I should, I get a lot of abetas and abatas and I don't, and I, let me tell you, let's correct people from now on. Cause it's okay. Yeah. I know. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I will no, go, not, if I could oh go back goodness. and dub, I would, but Vodder, that's good to know. Oh, okay. You, Dr. Laura Vodder, thank you again so much for coming Oh, on. thank you, Sunny. I really appreciate it. I love your show. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of We Gotta Talk. If you don't mind, I would love if you could leave a rating and review. Those help this show to get out to people who might find it useful or entertaining. I'm so grateful for your support. Please follow on Instagram at Sunny Abada or check out our latest blog post at wegotatalk.com slash blog. See you next time. Thank you.